I'd like to invite you to take them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. An entire chapter is what we are seeking to cover this morning. Thank you, Sierra and Luna as well for helping us this morning. We start them young in serving. I think that's a good idea. Welcome every single one of you, especially if this is your first time to Bigwood. Big Woods Bible Church, we are so glad that you are here. Bill and Brian, um, thank you for your leadership in the brass. It was an ensemble, it's a brass band, it's just growing, and we are so thankful. Um, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Thanksgiving, there is so much inside of us that just overflows in gratitude for all of God's goodness and grace in our lives. Um, I was thinking about it. We have a chapter before us that is a unique chapter to preach on. When, when you are one that is committed, um, as I am, as we are at Big Woods, to preach expositionally, which means verse by verse, chapter by chapter, you don't have the liberty of just jumping over something. And so you come to this chapter, which you will understand in a moment um, some of the challenges that exist in Genesis chapter 10. And I thought about what could be more fun on one day than to preach an entire chapter on genealogy, but to have a business meeting on exactly the same day. Talk about fun upon fun upon fun. We're just loading it up for you guys. Uh, just one point of clarification um, if you are a member here, as you saw that, I think in the bulletin as well as Pastor Stewart announced, you're, you're in a sense, you're required to be at the business meeting. But I don't think it was stated as well. If you are not a member, you're learning or you're en route to membership or you're praying about it or you just want to learn about Big Woods, by all means, you are welcome. We encourage people to stay to kind of witness business taking place. Um, matter of fact, I think it would be most helpful for you to learn a little bit more about Big Woods to save for the business meeting. So you are invited. If you're not a member, if you are a member, get your coffee and you're back here. You're going to be late to class. I can assure you of that. Okay, so one last thing. As I was preparing this, I was listening a lot this week, particularly on how to pronounce a lot of the names that are listed in the genealogy. So what, one of the tools that I have, and I know my brother Sean works with Lagos, and he was trying to sell me on that, and, and I, was, I use Lagos a lot, but I, I was using actually this week on my Bible app, I was using um, uh, Kristen Getty, who reads the Bible, and so I was listening all week long to this chapter being read. So I wanted to prepare you, if you know anything about Kristen Getty, if my pronunciation is off just a little bit, she is from Ireland, okay, and has a wonderful kind of Irish accent. So if my pronunciation of the names are off, it's because I have included this Irish accent on top of everything else, okay? Grace is to be extended to one another. I am in such need of the Lord's help this morning. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we commit our time together to study God's word? Let's pray. Father, as we gather on, on your day, we woke up, Lord, 
to the beauty of your creation, the crispness and the coolness, the frost that was sparkling in the sunlight. And Lord, we are, we are amazed at who you are. We thank you for the blessing and privilege to, to see you and the handiwork in your glory displayed. As we now gather together as family, brothers and sisters in Christ, and your word is open before us, your, your spirit is present amongst us. And Lord, I know and I thank you that you have a word for us. And I would pray, Lord, ultimately that you would be glorified, that we would see your handiwork and the thread of prophecy even fulfilled from our list, Table of Nations. Father, I, I pray as well personally just for clarity and thought and mind and speech. And Lord, was already mentioned this morning, I, I think of people that are, are gathered here or those that are under the sound of, of my voice that are in the midst of trial or heartache, turmoil, pain, ones who have suffered the loss of loved ones, ones who are dealing with the unknown, ones, Lord, in a sense whose whose stomach is just knotted in worries. And Father, I, I just pray right now that you would minister to them in a way that they know it's, it's you alone that brings peace, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. Father, I, I thank you for this wonderful privilege that you have given to us. May we treat this time with the sacredness it deserves. May you be glorified. May you lead us to you. We ask this in the amazing and matchless and wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen and amen. Not only are we opening a new chapter, Genesis chapter 10, we're actually closing, as you remember, in old chapter. We're actually closing in old section and moving into an entirely new section of the book of Genesis. Lord willing, we have learned together that God's chosen man for the day was Noah. We've spent months. He was described as one who was righteous, one who was blameless, one who walked with God when the world at the time was none of those things. We learned that he was completely obedient, building an ark exactly like God told him to build it. We know that he was saved alongside of his family. He was safe from God's wrathful judgment, the flood, by what? Through faith and trusting God that he's always, always good to his word. We learned that he was a worshiper of God by building an altar, offering what a sacrifice out of love and devotion and appreciation to God. We learned that he was the representative of a covenant, a promise from God that he never again would destroy the earth by way of a flood. And yet we also learned, as Gene preached last week, that what he was not perfect. But you do realize this, do realize, apart from his drunkenness, which was reprehensible in the sight of of a holy God, you do realize it was his only recorded blemish. His only recorded blemish, but it was a blemish, no doubt, which is a reminder for us. It's a reminder that what? God chooses 
And God uses imperfect people just like us. And also, you will note that just like Noah, you can be assured that our story, every single one of us will read exactly how his story concluded last Sunday with the last three words of Genesis chapter 9. And he died. That's, that's, that's like, that's inevitable. Oh, how our lives are quickly fleeting, quickly passing by. Therefore, what? Therefore, the importance of preparing. The importance and priority of teaching and modeling godliness and godly living for the next generation. You will quickly be gone and it will be the young ones who take over for us. Yes, thankfully, we know that Noah was obedient. We know that Noah was a worshiper, but he could not escape, not in his own work, the curse of sin and death. Thus, as our days, as your days are quickly waning, we must keep the focus on the incredibly important, what? Good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. Because it is through his death, the price that was paid so our sins, my sins and your sins could be forgiven and through his resurrection that secured our only hope, our only promise of redemption and eternal life. Before we go forward, we've always got to go backwards to kind of set this stage of where we are at. Remember the priority of the gospel. I'll read our, our chapter in sections, and I will begin slowly, just so that you will know. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, here it is. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Stop. Let's, let's make a couple observations real quick here before we kind of dive into this. Observation number one is this. Genesis chapter 10 is referred to as a historical narrative of the descendants of Noah's three sons. It's often called the table of nations, which means in a sense it's a list that traces the origins of nations and people groups as they dispersed around the world following the flood. And you will note this three different times, as I will read it, verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31, there's this phrase, this statement that you will hear, or something very similar, and it says this, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Which means what? We all know that differing languages did not exist prior to the Tower of Babel that you'll see in chapter 11, but after the Tower of Babel. Therefore, observation number one is this. Chronologically, Genesis chapter 10 actually comes after Genesis chapter 11. If it wasn't confusing enough, now you'll understand why. Think about it. These groups of people did not willingly and obediently separate to fill the earth. 
Rather, we will learn in Genesis chapter 11 why these families separated from each other and how it came to be that there's so many languages in the world. There's no contradiction here. Moses, who is the author, is merely putting the effect before the cause. Observation number two, just as we kind of dive into this. Every time you hear or read of Noah's three sons, which actually we've heard now for months, chapter 5, verse 32, we're introduced to them, chapter 9, verse 18, and again, chapter 10, verse 1, it always reads this, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. However, what you have to understand is that the listing of the sons is not in order of birth, but in order of impact and importance. Notably, beginning with the most important one, because it is through Shem, who is always listed first, we receive the blessing. It is through his line that the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Now, we do kind of know the relative order or ages of each, but I use this term relative because depending on really which English translation you read, there is, and I will tell you this in a minute, there is an apparent contradiction here. And in Hebrew, it's not really much clearer. For example, you'll hear me read this verse. Genesis chapter 10, verse 21 reads, in the ESV, to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, the elder brother of Japheth's children were born. The New American Standard reads, also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth's children were born. It seems pretty clear that the birth order would be what? According to these translations, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. But hold on just a moment. If you were to go to the King James Version, it says this, unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, even to him children were born. The NIV says what? Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. These would agree that what? The order would read Japheth, Shem, and then Ham. Clearly, it's not clear. What we do know for certain is this. Ham was the youngest. Virtually every single person, commentary and translation agrees. Chapter 9, verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, what the mocking of his father's drunkenness that Gene taught on last week. Thus, the descendant of Canaan receiving the curse. People ask me, well, what do you personally believe? Well, it doesn't matter what I believe. But I would lean toward the order in which they are referenced in Scripture. And it begins in verse 2 with the sons of Japheth before to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber in verse 21. Now, why do I mention all of this? What does this even matter? And I'll give you a little bit of a foreshadow, a little bit of a hint to learn something from whom most of us gathered here this morning, not all of us, but most of us are descendants of. And here's the little hint. Regardless of what your mother told you, regardless of what your third grade teacher told you, you're not as important as you think you are. 
That's just a free little hint even before we dive into this. Observation number three. Notice well that there are 70 nations that are listed in the table of nations. The selective list of 70, like the number seven nations that come from Noah's sense, communicate completion and totality. All of the nations are represented. Note the entire passage as well basically is an entire list of names explaining how the sons of Noah populated different regions of the globe. It also covers a long period of time as families and clans migrated to particular places in the earth. For example, let's begin. Okay, here it is. Number one, the sons of Japheth. We'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. We'll read down through verse 5. The word of the Lord. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togermah, the sons of Javan, Elishish, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Stop. So we have the first son here, and the only additional comment regarding Japheth's offspring is what? There's not a lot of information here, other than it says, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands. They inhabit the coastland. They like the beach, so to speak. Therefore, they stretch the furthest, making up what many would call the geographical horizon of Moses, who is the author of his, his world. This would be the family, the clans, and nations that would at this point make up what we would call the outer fringes of the known world, moving and living mostly north and east of Canaan, and they spoke the Indo-European languages. Specifically, what we know is this. Gomer went north of the Caspian Sea. Tubal and Meshach went to the southern shores of the Black Sea. Tyrus lived west of the Black Sea in Thrace. Madai went south of the Caspian Sea. Javan populated Ionia, the southern part of Greece. The sons of Javan, which are Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim, went to the northern Mediterranean as far west as Spain. So think for a moment. Many of us who can trace our roots back, I would say most of us who trace our roots back to Europe, Spanish heritage that is here, Italian, English, Scottish, German, Polish, Ireland, Germany, Holland, France, these are our ancestors. So when you begin to say, wait a minute, they're listed first, which means what? By way of order of birth, I believe, you're the least important. Just a free little tidbit. Here we go. Secondly, the sons of Ham. We pick up in verse 6. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, 
Rama and Sepekah, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty warrior, hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went up into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt father Ludum, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kephtoram. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Havites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arbadites, the Zemrites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zobiam. As far as Lasha, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Stop again. We, we actually have more written on the sons of Ham than of any of the others. And here is basically what we know. Ham's four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, settled primarily in northeast Africa and Egypt, the eastern part of the Mediterranean, the southern part of Arabia. Cush populated the upper Nile, the southern part of Egypt, and the son's name, who is Egypt, which actually translates in Hebrew, Egypts, it reads plural, settled in the upper and lower part of Egypt. Canaan settled what was later called Palestine after the Philistines, and there's no certainty where put settled. So it is literally true that no one knows where put was put. <laughs> and that's the extent of humor in the list of genealogies. <laughs> but notice in this list that there is one, there's one here of such infamy that it's mentioned. He's mentioned. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, before you stop and think for a moment that this guy is a great deer hunter, before you automatically, automatically go, as people do in central Pennsylvania, to, to camouflage and tree stands. This is not the case here at all. What is significant about Nimrod, certainly that he established cities and built a kingdom is very important, but there's much more to that. This is the first one who is described three times with the word mighty. First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 10 uses the exact same phrase as well. But note here that this adjective to describe Nimrod is not a good one. Therefore, it is what? Negative. It's bad. Think about the entire empire of Babylon. As you'll see, Babel comes from in 
chapter 11, was in affront, was in attack, both to God. We don't need him. We can meet him. We're better than him. And it's also in affront to man, as there was a rule such as a tyrant over the rest of mankind. Martin Luther, who I've already recorded, um, told you that he had eight volumes of commentary just listed on the book of Genesis, was bang on when he explained that this hunter is not speaking of his ability to hunt wild game. Rather, he was a hunter of men. He was a warrior. And it was his ability to fight and to kill and to rule ruthlessly that his kingdom was established. One commentator renders this paragraph, Cush begat Nimrod. Nimrod. He began to be a knighty despot. He was an arrogant, tyrant, defiant before the face of the Lord. This is someone who is what? In a front And you'll see that as you kind of trace down through what happens in the chapters to follow. You hear this phrase, don't be a nimrod. In a sense, what? An arrogant, godless tyrant. Finally, considering this list of the sons of Canaan, note as well, not all the sons of Ham. Okay, not all the sons of Ham, but specifically the sons of Canaan, reads like in many ways a most wanted list of Israel's enemies throughout much of the Old Testament. The Canaanites included the Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, and there's a long list. One commentary suggested that the only one missing here were the termites. And that's not being derogatory in any way to a particular people group, since there's no record of them having survived. In many ways, I believe they were such evil, including what? Acts of temple prostitution, human sacrifice, even child sacrifice. They were eradicated from existence. Third, The sons of Shem, let's pick it up in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gather, and Mash, or Pakshad fathered Shelah, Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Alamodad, Shalef, Hazarmavith, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abamal, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah. 
according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Finally, lastly, but if you recall, first, by way of prominence, impact, and importance is Shem. Shem had five sons, Elam, Asher, Aparkshad, Lud, Aram, who are Semitic people. What does that mean? Semitic or relating to or denoting a family of languages that includes Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, and certain ancient languages such as Phoenician and Akkadian. Primarily, they settled in the regions of the Persian Gulf, Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, which is Turkey, as well as present-day Syria. Notice as well that this includes both Jew and Arab. The ancestor of the Hebrew people is what, in a sense, the most significant of Shem's descendants was Eber, grandson of Shem. It's from him and it's from his line that we will see later on that we will get to one whose name is Terah and ultimately what? His son whose name we know was Abram or Abraham. Thus we understand that it's through this line that something big is happening here. Now other than the names and a brief mention to this Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, which I believe is a reference later on to the Tower of Babel, as well as the third time it's mentioned that we have this phrase over and over again, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then a final word, just as our title suggests, the nations spread abroad. So let's just kind of step back for a moment. Let's, let's ask this question. Why the geography lesson? Why the genealogies? Why the lineage? A bunch of names that, that no one really knows, no one remembers. In all honesty, even dear Kristen Getty, probably no one can pronounce correctly. When some of you are sitting here this morning thinking what? We're on the eve of Thanksgiving. And you're thinking what? I got life to live. I've got bills to pay. I've got kids in school who are whining and complaining. Thanksgiving's coming. I've got a house to clean, a turkey to cook. I've got weird Uncle Henry coming over for Thanksgiving. What does this matter to me? I'll tell you what it matters. You, you, know, the, you know the plan that you are putting in place for this coming celebration. You know you have this to-do list. And this to-do list. In a sense brings a order. And structure. Of inviting people. Of purchasing. Of preparing a feast. For everyone that you love. To come and enjoy. You know how. You're doing that? Well, let me tell you, God is doing the exact same thing. And a little hint here, he does a much better job than you or I could ever do. 
Think about your plans that are coming up for this coming Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Your planning probably, if you're honest, goes back as far as last Monday. Maybe, maybe by way of travel plans, maybe it goes far back as last month. And you're just hoping at this point, maybe it all comes together. Hopefully the turkey doesn't dry out, the gravy isn't too lumpy, uh, and Uncle Henry doesn't bring up the subject of politics. (laughs) That's what we're hoping for. And yet in the midst of this, we have a text of Scripture that reminds us what? God is putting a plan in place, and it is a perfect plan. The plan includes what? In a sense, the entire world will be invited or welcome. At some level, what? An opportunity is given for people to be forgiven. An opportunity is given for there to be hope in the midst of a hopeless and a desperate, a dark and a depressing world. The opportunity is given to everyone for there to be a rescue, for redemption, for heart and soul and mind. What do we take from this? Remember, God's plan is perfect regardless of location or language, regardless of the depth of rebellion or distance from God, he is carefully making a way for the entire world to be offered salvation through his own son, Jesus. Now, in a sense, you think about it, how does the entire world receive an invitation how does that happen when it's one family it's one family there's eight people in one tiny corner of the world how does this happen this is how it happens and yes what we know and we will read the story we, we know that there will be seasons of confusion. What is God doing? Just like in your life right now. Like, Lord, I'm not quite tracking with your plan for me. Without a doubt, there will be seasons of confusion. There will be seasons of rebellion. There will be evil. There will be, as there are today, wars and warriors. And there will be thugs and attacks and bloodshed and destruction. But what I want you to see is that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this, there was always one There's always one that, in a sense, God is weaving through. And it begins with Adam and moves to his son, Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Eber, to Tara, to Abram, to Abraham, 
Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David. There's always one that God, in a sense, is choosing and using that will lead us to the one. That leads us to the one. Next week in Genesis chapter 11, you'll read another long list of genealogy in chapter 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 10 to verse 32, and you'll see the line from Shem all the way to Terah. And then you go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, and it picks up what? Because it's from Terah, we get Abram, Abraham, and you'll see in Matthew chapter 1, again, the entire genealogy list from Abraham directly to Jesus. You understand here, this isn't by accident. This is God's sovereign will that he has put into place. Pastor Stewart was praying this morning, and I was struck with this line of the millions upon millions of stars that God has created, the supernovas. In a sense, it's that sovereign God that is revealing in passages and pages of scripture like this that a perfect plan has been and is presently being put into place choosing and using what? Imperfect people just like us. And guess what? Guess what? This is the best news. You are invited to celebrate. You're invited to celebrate. We're in the first book of the Bible. And, and, and the plot, in a sense, is, is being laid out. And the characters we're being introduced to. And we know from what Genesis to Revelation, there is a lot of stuff that's like, whoa, what in the world? And yet right now, if we turn to the very last book of the Bible, almost the very last chapter, It says this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the feast. To the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited. I wrote in my notes here, who's that? Who, 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 well, who, who gets this invitation? Two times. Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 7. And we have glimpses. And praise God that we have glimpses like this. Because we know how the story ends. In light of the news, in light of the bloodshed, the turmoil, and the terror, we know how the story ends. And God in his grace in his mercy, gives to us glimpses like this. Who's invited? Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See it? And not only what, not only once, but again we see it twice. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. 
standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And what happens? Those who have been invited from every nook and cranny and corner of the world. Through the marvelous and matchless grace of God's sovereignty is making a way. And, and do, you know, do, you know what, do you know what's neat for us right here this morning? Is that you and I are called to have a part of fulfilling God's perfect plan. I think that there's, even in this room right now, I think there's young people here. Maybe there's old people. I don't know. You're not dead yet. <laughs> Maybe there's young people even right now that the Lord will speak to to say, you know what? I need to go and I need to learn a language that I don't know because I can tell people who haven't heard the name of Jesus all about the fact that if he what? If he loved me, if he forgives me, he can forgive anybody. You know, we are blessed as a church. We are blessed. We are so blessed as a church. And I was, I was preparing for this, and, and I knew it would be challenging to kind of read this, and how do we make the connection? But, but you understand, in a sense, the, the, the forerunner of the feast, a, a sign that reminds us of the covenant that God has given to us. We just spoke about this, is the Lord's table is the Lord's Supper that, in a sense, it prepares us and reminds us because we, we move so quickly, we move too, too quickly, rapidly, and we forget what God has done for us. The busyness of this week, and we have plans and preparations, and I'm so grateful that God, in his perfect timing, says, wait a minute, before anything else, what are we most thankful for? What is this pointing to? How is it that people from all over the place can fall before and worship by acknowledging the truth that is witnessed right here in the communion table and the elements? And so it is such a privilege for us to pause and remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. As I began this morning, I reminded you that what our story in many ways will end like Noah's, and he died. And so we intentionally speak of God's goodness and grace, particularly to those who are coming behind us. Jesus preparing his own disciples for his own suffering and, and death and means of salvation and resurrection he was gathered in the upper room and, and, and Jesus, the ultimate and brilliant, the master teacher, communicator, he understood how we remember things and he's, he's, he's putting a plan in place so that we would never forget what he's done. And he uses, in a sense, an object lesson because we, we connect with something that we see and, and we touch and, and we, we can taste and smell. And so Jesus, it says, took bread, kind of like this, like without leaven, it was flat. And sitting with those Disciples, those who would suffer, those who would be sent out. He said, this is a picture of my body. And he broke it in front of them. And he says, as this bread is broken, my body is going to be broken. And he's speaking what? What's going to happen within, within hours? Of his body 
suffering and being crucified. He said, I want you to to take a piece of this and I want you to eat it. And as you taste it, as you smell it and, and feel it, I want you to remember the suffering that I've gone through for you. And after that, it says that he took the fruit of the vine. He took some wine and, and he poured it out. And he said, this is a picture. Just, just as that was poured out, my blood is going to be poured out. For he understood that what? He was the only one. It wasn't you or me. It wasn't anybody in that long list. He was the only one that was without sin. The only one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he said, I want you to drink this. And as they passed it around and they drank it, as they had the taste on their tongue and the bread was an indelible impact, just like you and I need to have regularly. Why? Because as life moves crazy fast, we stop everything. And we as a church celebrate moments like this. We know that God's word is very clear that the communion table is only for those who have acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so I want to remind you that if you are here today, you've acknowledged the fact that you are a sinner. It doesn't take much convincing for any one of us. And we know and, and understand the consequences of our sin. Death and separation from God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. And we accept the sacrifice that Jesus paid, the atoning work that offers not just redemption from our sins, but he declares us justified, righteous before a holy God. And we've taken that step of faith. We've received the gift of salvation by God's grace and taken that step of faith and said, I believe. Then I want to remind you that this is for you. The way that we do it here at Big Woods is is, um, we we have tables throughout the sanctuary and the elders are going to come up and they're going to serve you. So what we do is just invite you to pause in quietness and solitude and thank the Lord for his love for you and the sacrifice that he made on your behalf and then come up to any one of the stations and and the men will serve you the communion table the bread and the cup and we ask just so that we do this together as family you take it back to your seats and we partake of it together and as we partake of it let me remind you that there's the greatest, greatest thing we can be thankful for this week. And it's this right here. God has blessed us amazingly and abundantly. And yet, before any of that, this is what we celebrate in the season of Thanksgiving. Gentlemen, in just a moment, I'd invite you to come up and prepare to serve our brothers and sisters at the communion table.
Thank you, my brothers. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, again, as we come with our heads bowed as a sign of our submission to your authority, acknowledging your holiness, your righteousness. We are humbled at the fact that there's so many things that that grab our attention that we confess and admit it. At times we can go days, maybe even weeks without acknowledging your love for us and your sacrifice for us. And so I thank you for this time that you've given to us to remember, to express our gratitude for the ultimate gift, the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered on our behalf. And it was through his shed blood that atones and redeems, that rescues, that heals and restores. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for this bread and this cup that are pictures of your body and blood that were sacrificed on our behalf. And, And Lord, as we take this, I would pray, Lord, that as we go into this week of thanksgiving, that we would be more thankful for you than anything. Blessed to our bodies, strengthen us in our striving to be faithful and obedient. We ask this in the amazing and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and he gave the instruction on how the church receives and takes and eats. He says this, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. It says, in the same manner also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And may he come quickly as Matt and the others are coming to lead us in our closing. And we oftentimes think about the focus being on us. I want to remind you from this doxology in the last verses of Jude where our focus needs to be. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.